Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, later today, many of us will be watching the Super Bowl, and so I'm curious, how many of you are polling for the San Francisco 49ers? Okay, like four people. How many of you are polling for the Kansas City Chiefs? How many of you were not aware that those were the competing teams until I just asked those questions? All right, you're honest. The truth is, a lot of people don't necessarily watch the Super Bowl for the football game, do they? A lot of people watch the Super Bowl. I really appreciate the enthusiasm. Thank you. A lot of people watch the Super Bowl for the what? The commercials, each year, advertisers spend tens of millions of dollars on brief Super Bowl ads. Now, sometimes these Super Bowl ads, though, can spark controversy. And this actually happened six years ago in 2018. Maybe some of you remember this. Dodge Ram aired a Super Bowl commercial in 2018 that featured one of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons. The sermon was on servanthood. And so throughout the commercial, there were images of people serving in a variety of ways, paired with the audible words of Dr. King from that sermon, extolling the virtues of servanthood, the value of servanthood. And then at the end of the commercial, there was a picture of a Dodge Ram truck with a tagline that said, Dodge Ram, built to serve. Well, as people pointed out, including, by the way, members of Dr. King's own family, Dr. King did not deliver that sermon all those years ago, hoping that we would see the value of a Dodge Ram truck. Dr. King, who was a faithful Baptist minister, preached that sermon, hoping that we would serve, hoping that we would uh, pick up our cross, follow Jesus, give ourselves to one another, put the needs of other people ahead of our own. And what made Dodge Ram's use of that sermon All the more ironic is that if you take the time to listen to that sermon in its entirety, which, by the way, it's a powerful sermon, as all of his sermons are, earlier in that message, now granted, this is not the part of the message that Dodge Ram used, but earlier in that message, Dodge Ram, or I'm sorry, Dr. King specifically references advertisers, including car companies, and how advertisers cleverly alert consumers into buying their product. Here's what he shared. They have a way of saying things to you that kind of gets you into buying. In order to be a man of distinction, you must drink this whiskey. In order to make your neighbors envious, you must drive this type of car. In order to be lovely to love, you must wear this kind of lipstick or this kind of perfume. And you know, before you know it, you're just buying that stuff. That's the way the advertisers do it. Context matters, doesn't it? Context matters when trying to reference properly a sermon or speech 
from an important figure, such as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And context also matters when it comes to faithfully reading and interpreting Scripture. Uh, this morning, we wrap up our five-part sermon series titled, You Keep Using That Bible Verse, I Do Not Think It Means What You Think It Means. Um, over the past month, our congregation, our church family, has had a lot of fun exploring uh, various Bible verses that we so often, sometimes by accident, sometimes on purpose, but we so often take out of context, leading to interpretations of these verses that the writers of the Bible did not intend. And so we began our journey some weeks ago with Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Uh, this is the verse that a lot of people like to put on a graduation card. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And then the second week, we shifted our focus to Philippians 4.13. This is the verse that athletes like to use. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And then the next week, the third week, uh, we look carefully at Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. And then last week, the fourth week, Pastor Will helped us to better understand James chapter 4, verse 3 which says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. Well, folks, this morning, we conclude these messages with an up-close look, an up-close examination of another misinterpreted Bible verse. That would be 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It's up here on the screen. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we all say, thanks be to God. Now, in this sermon series, and this information is up here on the screen, in the sermon series, we typically start by explaining how the verse in question has been misread, taken out of context, and then second, we delve into the proper context so that we can arrive at a faithful and accurate understanding. But since this is our last sermon for this series, I thought that we would change things up. Is it okay to change things up? Let's switch the order. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to start with the proper context first, and then second, we're going to talk about how this verse has been misinterpreted and why this misinterpretation isn't only inaccurate, but unhelpful, and actually even dangerous. And so let's start by reading this verse again. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, the verse that we're focusing on in the sermon. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, if we're going to understand what's being communicated here in this verse, we need to know who wrote it. Who wrote this verse? The Apostle Paul, um, who actually wrote a lot of the New Testament. 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament were authored by the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was an apostle, as I just said. Uh, in the Greek, apostle literally means somebody who is sent. Think of Apollo, right? The space shuttle that goes into outer space and why do we call it that? Well, because it's being sent into space. Apollo means sent. Apollo, apostle means sent. 
And so Paul was sent by Jesus Christ himself. He had this powerful encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. He was sent by Jesus Christ himself to be a missionary. He would travel around the Mediterranean region preaching the gospel, telling other people the good news of Jesus Christ so that they could come into a relationship with God. And he also would establish churches. In fact, throughout his life, Paul embarked on three. How many? Three significant missionary journeys. Three significant missionary journeys. The second of these journeys, this would have been around A.D. 49 to A.D. 51. The second of these journeys took him to Corinth, just off the coast of Greece. We see Corinth up here on the screen. Now, if we're going to understand the letters that Paul wrote to the people of Corinth, and we have two of these letters in the New Testament. What are the names? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Now, we may have three letters from Paul to the church in Corinth because some people wonder if 2 Corinthians is actually a combination of two letters. But that's a topic for another sermon. Nevertheless, if we're going to understand the content that Paul wrote to the congregation in Corinth all those years ago, well, we need to have some insight into the city of Corinth itself. You see, folks, all those years ago, Corinth was renowned as the party hub of the ancient world. Anybody ever been to a college fraternity party? Yeah, think of that to the nth degree. Or do you know how the city of Las Vegas, where the Super Bowl is going to be played tonight, well, Las Vegas has a slogan, doesn't it? What's the slogan for Las Vegas? You've all seen the commercials, haven't you? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, I kid you not, I'm not making a joke here. The city of Corinth, 2,000 years ago, also had a slogan. The slogan was this. It's up here. Can you say this word? I had to practice it a bunch of times. Corinthiasathai. Corinthiasathai, which is Greek, and translated into English, it means this, to live like a Corinthian. If there had been postcards back then, this would have been on the postcards. Come to Corinth, visit Corinth, live in Corinth, make your home in Corinth, and live like a Corinthian. Doesn't that sound appealing? This motto was synonymous with drunkenness, debauchery, sexual immorality, having no sexual boundaries. And this sort of approach to living, this, this wild approach, this loose approach to life impacted that congregation, that Christian community that the Apostle Paul had helped to establish. Do you know how we know this? Because Paul gives specific examples in 1 Corinthians. What I want to do this morning is I want to highlight just two examples. There could be more, but I'm going to highlight just two. Now, I want to warn you, these examples are pretty extreme. You know, sometimes you're listening to Christian radio, and they'll say, safe for the little ears. These examples are not safe for the little ears. Yes, this is in the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. Now, when Paul uses that word pagan, he's referring to people who don't follow God, who don't worship God. What he's saying is this behavior is so atrocious that even people who don't worship God, 
They don't engage in this kind of behavior. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. What does living in sin mean? That's Bible talk for this man was having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. With this woman that his father had married later on in life. And if that's not bad enough, check out what Paul says later in this letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, regarding abuse of the Lord's Supper. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Now back then, the Lord's Supper, what we call in this church Holy Communion, some churches call it the Eucharist, all talking about the same thing. Well, the Lord's Supper back then, it was more than a little piece of bread and a tiny cup of grape juice. Instead, it was a full-blown meal. Christians would sit down, they would eat this meal together, but as Paul notes in this chapter, there were people eating this meal before others had a chance to, so by the time they got there, there was nothing left. And there was probably some, some disparity going on between the classes, uh, wealthier people who didn't have to work as much. Uh, maybe they were eating the meal, and so people who had to work, they would come back from work, there was nothing to eat. And then to make matters even worse, they were also using the wine from the Lord's Supper, this sacred meal, as an opportunity to get drunk. This was not a healthy church. Some of the churches Paul wrote to, I mean, none of them were perfect, but some of them were fairly healthy, like the church in Philippi. By and large, that was a healthy church. The Corinthian church was not. Dysfunctional and messed up things were happening. And so Paul, like an attorney... He systematically addresses these issues in 1 Corinthians one by one by one. But then when he gets to chapter 10, he does something a little different. Paul initiates a broader discussion on temptation, and he grounds this discussion on temptation in a warning from Israel's past. Remember the people of Israel? God's chosen nation, the nation that God himself chose from all the peoples of the planet, well, after the nation of Israel was liberated from slavery in Egypt, before they went into the promised land, where did they go? After Egypt and before the promised land, where were the people of Israel? In the desert for how long? Well, while they were in the desert for 40 years, they succumbed to all kinds of temptation. They allowed the things around them to take precedence over God. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what's happening here in this Christian community in Corinth. Paul draws a parallel between the people of Israel and what's going on with this congregation. But then, in verse 13 of chapter 10, Paul reminds these Corinthian Christians that the temptations that they're struggling with, the temptation to get drunk, the temptation to not have any um, sexual boundaries, the temptation to uh, put things ahead of God, these temptations are no different than what other people have experienced. And God is faithful. God does not author the temptation, but God also does not allow the temptation to be more than we can stand. He doesn't allow the temptation to be more than we can stand. And God also loves us. God cares about us. God's invested in us. God wants the best for us. And so when we are tempted, when we find ourselves in this potentially 
compromising situation where we can go this way or this way. You know what we got to do? All we got to do is look to God. God loves us. God cares about us. God's invested in us. God wants the best for us. God will show us a way out. Reminds me of a story about a grandfather who had a grandchild, and he said to his grandchild, there are two wolves. Sir, if you want to come inside, that's okay. It's good to see you this morning. Yeah. There are two wolves living inside every person. The first wolf, he said, represents a way of life that is harmful, toxic. On the surface, it seems appealing, but it's really dangerous and takes us down a bad path. The second wolf, he said, represents a way of life that pleases and honors the Lord. And so the grandson asked the grandfather, which of these two wolves ultimately wins? And here's what the grandfather said, whichever one you feed. When we are tempted, are we going to feed that temptation? Are we going to give in to that temptation? Are we going to succumb to it? Or instead, are we going to look to God who will show us a way out, who will give us that exit ramp? That's the message Paul communicates here in 1 Corinthians 10. After acknowledging the impact of the prevailing culture on that community, he initiates this conversation on temptation, grounding it in a warning from Israel's history so that the Corinthian Christians know how to practically handle temptations that come their way. And so that then brings us to the second part of the sermon. The first part was understanding the context of this verse. The second part is this. How has 1 Corinthians 10.13 been misinterpreted? And what should our response be to this misinterpretation? You see, folks, there is a religious platitude, a cliche that people have read into this verse. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've used it. It goes like this. God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, typically, we say this cliche, God won't give you more than you can handle, to people who are suffering, going through a challenging season. Hey, listen, I know things are hard right now. I know things are difficult right now. I know you're weighed down. I know you're feeling crushed and discouraged. But keep your chin up. Take heart. God won't give you more than you can handle. However, this cliche, God won't give you more than you can handle, is problematic for at least three reasons. Number one, as we've already acknowledged, this cliche is based on a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 10.13. It's derived from 1 Corinthians 10.13, but it's based on a misunderstanding of this verse because in this verse, Paul isn't talking about suffering. He's not talking about challenging seasons. He's talking about temptation. But then second, not only is this cliche, God won't give you more than you can handle, based on a misunderstanding of this Bible verse, it's also based, in my conviction, on a gross misunderstanding on the character of God, on the nature of God. What are the first four words of this cliche? God won't give you. The assumption is, if you're suffering, God must be behind that suffering. God gave you that suffering. 
God's the reason you were in that accident. God's the reason you lost your job. God's the reason you're having trouble paying the bills. God's the reason you lost your child. And I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've encountered this theology. So I want to remind us of something really crucial. Our understanding of God does not come from what we're going through in a particular moment. We don't take a bad season and then project that onto God. Instead, our understanding of God, our theology of God, comes from Scripture, especially Jesus, who, as Scripture says, reveals the fullness of God to us. The Apostle Paul, the writer that we're talking about, he expresses this truth so beautifully and powerfully in Colossians 1, verse 19. He says, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Notice, Paul doesn't say some of God was pleased to live in Christ. Oh, 85% of God was pleased to live in Christ. No, God in all his fullness, the entirety of God was wrapped up in Jesus of Nazareth. And so here's what this means. Think about Jesus. Think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, when Jesus came among us 2,000 years ago, did he go around making people sick? How many people did Jesus make sick? How many people did Jesus give cancer to? Zero. How many people did he heal? Countless. How many demons did he exercise from people? Significant number. None of us really know. When Jesus came among us, did he go around making storms? He calmed storms. When Jesus came among us, did he go around taking human life? He gave his own life on the cross. If we're suffering, we shouldn't necessarily assume that God must be behind it. Instead, we suffer for a variety of reasons. I mean, sometimes we suffer because of our own choices. Anybody here ever suffer because of a bad choice that they made? We all have. Maybe because of temptation that you engaged in that took you down a really bad path. Sometimes we suffer because of our choices. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's choices. And sometimes we suffer, quite frankly, because suffering is a part of this broken world. This world that God originally made good, but fell away into sin and to brokenness. This world that God is redeeming, but God has not yet fully redeemed. God will not yet fully redeem this world until Jesus returns one day in the future to bring to fruition his saving work. But until that day, yes, we do experience suffering. None of us, not even the most faithful among us, are immune from the effects of suffering. And so the cliche, God won't give you more than you can handle, it's based on a misreading of 1 Corinthians 10.13. It's based on a misunderstanding of God because it assumes that God is behind our suffering. But this cliche also isn't true for a third reason. The fact of the matter is, quite frankly, we do encounter situations that we can't handle. I've been in situations that I couldn't handle. Some years ago, I went through this really challenging season. And strangely, this challenging season was followed by a great one. Has that ever happened to you? You go through a really wonderful season, and then all of a sudden you go to a bad season. 
Uh, to give some context, I had just been fully ordained as a pastor. After a lot of years of seminary work and preparation, I also had been sent to serve my own church for the first time. It wasn't Asbury, it was a different congregation. And then to top it all off, I met the person who I knew right away was going to be my wife, Amanda. We had our first date at Barney's Coffee Shop on Park Avenue in Winter Park. Five days after I had my first date with Amanda, I got a phone call from my father who told me that my mom, who was 59, who had been my biggest encourager, oh my goodness, she was so excited to see me fully ordained. My last picture with her is at the ordination service at annual conference. She had stage four cancer. She went into the ICU, died a month later. Never got a chance to meet Amanda. So, went to her funeral, came back. Things only seemed to get worse. I'm not going to get into all the details, but I dealt with some fractured relationships in my own personal life that really left me devastated. And I encountered professional challenges that demoralized me and left me feeling discouraged made me question the call that God had placed on my life to be a pastor. I keep a prayer journal in which I occasionally write out prayers to God, and my handwriting is so bad that only the Lord and I understand it. <laughs> Here's what I wrote in that prayer journal at one point. Lord, I'm not sure how much longer I can do this. I don't know how much more I can take. Help me, Lord. I remember going to a doctor because I was sick and I just wasn't getting better. And the doctor asked me what was going on. And he said, you know, what's happening to you physically is being impacted by what's happening to you mentally and emotionally and spiritually. You know what got me through that season? Prayer, obviously. Leaning on other people, especially Amanda, who was such a godsend. I really do believe in my heart of hearts that God sends us the right people at just the right time. And also seeking help from a therapist so that I could talk through these issues and these challenges with somebody else and you could give me some perspective. That was a situation I couldn't handle by myself. All of us find ourselves in these trying situations from time to time, even figures in the Bible did, like Paul. In fact, Check out what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. Folks, I don't hear Paul saying, God didn't give me more than I could handle. I hear Paul saying, I was in an overwhelming situation. I was feeling weighed down. I was feeling crushed. But you know what? I learned to rely on God. My friends and I, we learned to rely on God who alone raises the dead. He raised his own son on Easter Sunday. He's going to raise us up too. King David in the Old Testament, he also expresses this truth. In Psalm 23, the most famous psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The two most significant words in that verse are the words though and through. Though and through. And what separates those two words, though and through? Just one letter. What letter is that? R. When I was in college, I took two semesters of American Sign Language. I don't remember everything I learned, but I do remember the alphabet. And in American Sign Language, if you want to signify the letter R, do you know how you do that? You take your middle finger and your index finger. We have an example of this. You cross those two fingers. That's the letter R in American Sign Language. Now, what's interesting is in the early church, when Christianity was being when Christianity first got started and Christians were being persecuted left and right from religious officials, from the government, well, the early Christians would take those two fingers and they would cross them as a way of symbolizing the cross. That was their way of saying to one another, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus just like you. Nowadays, though, when we cross these two fingers, what do we mean by that? If I cross my fingers to somebody, what am I saying? Good luck. Cross your fingers for me, I've got an exam. Cross your fingers for me, I've got a job interview. Cross your fingers for me, I've got a meeting with my boss and I'm really nervous about it. So how did this gesture of crossing our two fingers go from symbolizing that I'm a follower of Jesus to symbolizing good luck? Well, none of us can be sure. But Pastor Rob Fuquay he serves a large United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. He offers this interesting theory. It's unproven, but it's interesting. He believes that when the early Christians were going through trials, well, they would cross their fingers to show to one another that they, they were Christian and that their allegiance was to Jesus, but also if they were going through a trial, they would cross their fingers to demonstrate that Jesus was with them and that he was going to see them through. Yea, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This reflects what the Lord does. God transforms our though into a through. Yea, do I walk through. God transforms our though into a through. If you're going through a challenging season and you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling helpless, I want you to know those feelings are fine. That's okay. Seek help, lean on others, and trust the very one who raises the dead. Only he can transform your though into a through. He's done that for me. He continues to do that for me. He did that for figures in the Bible. He'll do that for you too. Instead of relying on a cliche that has no grounding in Scripture, rely on God. Take a hold of God. Grab on to God, even as God grabs on to you and promises to never let go. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are with us through every season, every trial, every hardship, and that you take our though and you transform it to a through. Help us to trust in you. Help us to lean on you. Help us to lean on the people that you have put in our lives. 
even when things are difficult. Give us peace. Give us encouragement, as only you can do. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen.